0: Star Trek has never been just one thing. While we tend to think we know what Star Trek is now, its worldview, themes, and approach to storytelling, as well as its backstory, and even characterizations, all came together over time and were shepherded by diverse voices, including those of the fans after the 60s series ended. The ideas we associate with Trek are flexible, shifting and changing over time, depending on who is writing it, and even who is watching. In
1: this sense, then, Star Trek itself is a merry universe. Or, to put it another way, Star Trek's real mirror universe is our universe. In
0: this podcast, we'll be gazing into the mirror that is Trek, and focusing on how that reflection can shift and
1: change. As Garrick once said, Star Trek, like beauty, is in the eye of the beholder.
0: Star Trek is about the future. So, what does the future of Star Trek look like? For over 20 years, Trek has had the odd problem of being trapped in time. After Voyager ended, every piece of on-screen Star Trek media was a prequel. A strange choice for a show that's always been about moving forward. It's possible that the producers lacked confidence in being able to tell stories in the idealized world of TNG-era Trek, or if they felt that they had to give the Trek audience stuff that they felt comfortable with. Either way, Trek had become largely about nostalgia. In this past year, though, with Trek once again established as a pop-cultural force, we've finally seen Star Trek series that progress beyond the familiar timeline, that try to move the universe of Trek to a new place.
1: But what does that new place look like? Is the future of Star Trek about nostalgia and reenacting past glories, going where we've been before but from new angles and in new corners? Or does the future of Star Trek require us to move beyond the characters, planets, and tropes we've seen before? Does it involve expanding into new types of stories, new ways of imagining what Star Trek could be? Star Trek, like any form of legacy media, faces an existential dilemma. It owes so much of its survival to the loyalty and persistence of its fans. Should it reward those fans and ensure their loyalty by paying homage to what the show has been? Or is too much fealty to the show's history ultimately a trap? alienating new fans, dividing the existing fan base, and forcing the show to seek ever diminishing returns. In this our final episode, Adam and I will discuss the future of Star Trek, the new projects on the horizon, the long-term survival of the franchise, and the role Star Trek can play in an ever-changing media environment. All this, of course, forces us to confront the key question that drives this podcast. What is Star Trek?
0: Hi everyone! Welcome to the Mirror Universe podcast. As always, I'm Adam, and with me is Douglas. G'day. day, and uh, we're uh, excited to be uh, wrapping up this uh, this show. We've had we've both had uh, a lot of fun doing it, um, but uh, we think uh, we've we've had some interesting uh, discussions about Star Trek. And uh, as as we record this, uh, Star Trek Discovery had ended its uh, third season. Um, Lower Decks had had its first season. Uh, they've just announced some... Uh, they've just put up some images of the new Star Trek Prodigy series that's coming up, and uh, we know that they're going to do uh, a Captain Pike starring show, and we know they're going to be apparently doing a Section 31 show, although that's a in a weird limbo at the moment. Um, and there's... Movies seem to be also trapped in limbo, so that's the status quo of Trek as we speak right now. There is a lot of Trek on the horizon. <laughs> there's, uh, there's basically no fear that we're going to run out of Trek anytime soon. We know Discovery's coming back for a fourth season later this year, I believe, and um, and uh, as we've said in previous episodes, we've seen Discovery go to a very interesting place. I think that for the first time, we're seeing Star. Trek. This past year has, for the first time, given us Star Trek that was not. Uh, prequels. Uh, so that's the big That's the big momentous new occasion for Star Trek. This is the first time since Voyager ended, and even Voyager of course because it was on the other side of the galaxy didn't advance the uh, story of Star Trek and the, the meta story of Star Trek. Uh, I know there's been Star Trek Online, which I've never played. I don't, you said you've never played it, right Douglas?
1: Never played it. I have not played a Star Trek video game since Star Trek Armada when I was very young.
0: I've heard very good things about Star Trek online in terms of you know, they've had some of the guest cast on they've they've advanced the story a bit, but uh, yeah, I know basically nothing about it. It's a bit of a that's a bit of a blank spot in I my otherwise meticulous uh trek knowledge. Um, but uh yeah, so um while we're certainly not worried about Star Trek running out uh, in the future, uh we uh we are definitely. Left to consider what Star Trek is going to be like, and what are the what are the the ways in which it should move. Uh, now, Doug, apparently you've told me you have a, an extended analogy that you want to make on this subject.
1: Yes, I do, Adam. So, today where I'm recording, it's the 28th of February 2021, where Adam's recording, it's the 27th of February 2021. I bring this up both in terms of context, because by the time this episode airs, there could have been some new developments in Trek that would just blow our minds from where we are right now. And so as to make it clear that I, from the moment we planned out this episode three months ago, I have been planning an extended analogy between the future of Star Trek and the Korean sensation boy band Bangtan Yandan, better known as BTS. I am a massive fan of BTS. Um, it has been one of the few bright spots in what has been a terrible, terrible year. And so I wanted to draw out how the future of BTS mirrors some of the key tensions that lie behind the future of Star Trek. I'm doing this both because I'm obsessed with BTS and because the one fandom that's more chill, more okay with dissenting views and more comfortable with criticism of their favorites than Trickies is the fans of BTS. So, Bangtan Sonyeondan is a Korean boy band which has driven which has risen to extraordinary international success based upon intimacy, relatability and sincerity. Unlike many boy bands, both in Korea and in the United States, BTS's formula is based upon the close involvement of its members, particularly its rap line, in the creation of its songs and in the creation of a connection between audience and creator through music, that they sing about their experiences, their hopes, their dreams, their fears, their insecurities, that they allow themselves to be vulnerable, personal and relatable through their music. And this drove them to unparalleled heights for a korean act in the united states to a point bts appeared last year to have reached extraordinary success but to have reached something of a plateau because of the difficulties in accessing a broader audience in the united states with korean language music and so bts tried something different Rather than singing and rapping in Korean about their own hopes, dreams, and experiences, they bought a song in English of an Englishman who lives in London about going out and partying with your friends. The lyrics are bad, but the song is very catchy, and so Dynamite has ended up completely taking over the world. BTS are flying higher than they ever have before. But there's a real debate to be had If in order to become successful in a way that you never have before, you depart from the original formula that created that relationship of intimacy, relatability, and connection with your audience, is it really worth it? In BTS's case, potentially yes. I'm not saying this purely to criticise BTS because I'm a massive fan. Arguably, compromising on their key formula and creating a new audience for themselves by singing in English even a stupid, silly song like Dynamite, has allowed audiences to be exposed to and to explore their Korean language material and ultimately to create a new audience for their core sound. But these compromises have to be made and ultimately reaching a new audience may require the product itself to compromise on its fundamental characteristics or even to change what the product is. So to bring it back to Star Trek, Star Trek faces a dilemma. Is Star Trek ultimately going to be a franchise that thrives upon appealing to its core constituency, but accepting that there are limits to that constituency, that it may ultimately be a question of consolidating an ageing fan base, but at the expense of reaching out to new fans? Or does Star Trek need to expand into new audiences, try new things, compromising upon what's been before and ultimately even abandoning some of the settled verities of what Star Trek is in the hope that that allows some essential core of the franchise to survive or even brings the new fans into the old stuff. These tensions between the familiar old and the uncertain new are, I think, existential questions for Star Trek, because although it has survived for 50 years so far, it faces new and uncertain challenges in terms of appealing to an audience that by and large has grown up without Star Trek on TV. I'm so glad I got to do that analogy. I've been waiting for three months. This whole
0: podcast was secretly to let Douglas talk about Korean boy bands. That was the real...
1: It's no secret.
0: (laughs) We've smuggled that in and now we can switch to our... This is why it's the last episode. We're switching to our new format, all boy bands, all Korean pop, all K-pop all the time. Um, Well, okay. So, I mean, that is... Yeah, uh, of course, that's a great illustration of the things that happen when you have an ongoing uh, franchise. Um, I'm going to not disagree. Everything you said makes sense, of course. Um, I'm going to slightly disagree, not so much with the specifics of what you said, but with the context of what we're talking about here. Because one of the things about Star Trek, I think, is that it has always contained within itself the ability to adapt and rework itself for a new audience not not even rework itself but to be inclusive it is uh, and of course it has some of the same problems that many many other uh pieces of nerd media have had where you can get gatekeepers you can get people who are uh insisting on not having anyone uh you know of, of keeping it for in the clubhouse as they say uh but it's really been a more inclusive fan base broadly speaking, than a lot of other things. It's always been, and I mean, that's baked into the show. When Discovery launched with a, you know, a black female lead, uh, I don't think anyone blinked. I mean, I'm sure there were the usual trolls. There were definitely places where people moaned and tore their hair. But when you compare it to what's happened in Star Wars, uh, with <laughs> the new the new version of Star Wars having a woman and a black man as the, as the leads, um, that didn't seem at all out of place for Star Trek to have a black woman in the lead like no one would even blink and indeed as we've discussed somewhat in earlier episodes that's that's you can argue that black women have been a fundamental part of Star Trek right from the beginning if we're talking about specifically black women but any kind of any any minority or any any anybody who was uh, m- not a straight white male could fit into Star Trek, and nobody kind of blinks. We have have discussed, for instance, the fact that, you know, Trek has a bad record with LGBT people. Um, but um, nevertheless, when they very explicitly added a bunch of queer characters to Star Trek in Discovery, it, it in no way felt <laughs> like it didn't fit with the franchise. I mean, any any point in which you would start to say, well, that's that's not even in a bad way, but to say, well, okay, they've reworked uh, sort of a stale, old, musty franchise in a, in a more modern way. Uh, any sense that that was what was happening was probably left behind sometime in, if not next generation, then even earlier with the movies. I think we all just sort of went, okay, this is the version of Star Trek that... That one—it's the one where it's inclusive. It's got, you know, multiracial. Again, that was literally in the original show, but you could argue it sort of centered, you know, the the white male action hero type character. But even then, for its time, it was trying to be a little more inclusive. Um, and um, the uh, so so I don't think it's ever been a stretch that they've made that adaptation. And on top of it, again. This is what this is what put Trek in a way it positioned it very very powerful, powerfully uh, in a way that it didn't always take advantage of very well in the last twenty years. But you know it had done the thing that so many other franchises tried to do later when did Next Generation. It literally said, okay, it's going to be a new cast, it's going to be a new timeline. We're jumping forward, we're advancing and expanding on anything from the old one. We're not deriving too heavily from the old one. That was in retrospect something that really powered the Berman era because they didn't have to constantly be talking about Vulcans and, you know, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, Andorians and, and races from the original series. And they they created their own little, little uh, life raft of their own characters. And only very gradually did they finally go back to the original series. So it has definitely always been a show that's been like, okay, here's the new version. Boom. Uh, the only comparable version I could think of as Doctor Who, where it literally reinvents itself uh, on a constant basis. Um, so that is baked into the franchise in a way that it, it wouldn't always be. So I don't think um, anyone ever kind of saw Star Trek coming back and went, uh, you've got to, you know, are we going to you'll lose the old fans? I, I'm sure they did lose some of the old fans. But as we've said, too, Star Trek has spent the last 20 years going, like i think understanding that the old fans aren't enough in a sense i think they most of what you've seen in star trek for the last 20 years has been oh we've got to get beyond this little cadre of nerds that we've been relying on for 20 years we've got to branch it out and uh to almost i'd say it almost swung too far in the other direction uh not that Again, not not to be anti-inclusiveness, but to, in the sense of like uh, oh, we got to we got to hit the four quadrant blockbuster. We got to have, you know, everyone in in America going turning out to see this movie and it has to be as big as Star Wars and blah 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 and it never got there and th- I think that's probably for the best, honestly.
1: I think there's a lot to talk about there. First up on the topic of South Korean boy band Pung Tan Sonyeondan. <laughs> No, I, I think your point about the four quadrant blockbuster. Mm-hmm. It's there is an interesting and fascinating analogy to be drawn between the two thousand nine J.J. Abrams movie and Dynamite, which I'm not going to make at length. <laughs> but essentially, it amounts to taking the iconography of Star, the iconography of Star Trek and telling a conventional story with it. It's taking. It's definitely using the Trek characters, albeit drawn in relatively broad terms. It's using a lot of the key images of Star Trek, and it's using it to tell a type of story suited to the you know, conventions of 2000s blockbuster filmmaking. And I think that, that there's a similar... I think that the 2009 Star Trek movie, while obviously not the best Star Trek ever made, was enormously healthy for the franchise and indeed probably assisted the franchise at one of its darkest moments. After Enterprise was cancelled, when it really had shrunk, as you've said, to a cadre of nerds, there was real questions as to whether Star Trek would just continue shrinking from that, whether whatever goodwill it had with the general public over... over the small cadre had been frittered away over multiple TV series that hadn't captured the popular imagination. Showing that that imagery, showing that that brand had that power and that you could create a commercially viable entity out of it, I think was both enormously useful in terms of encouraging the continued production of Star Trek, but also that you meet people who got into Star Trek through the 2009 movie, who were able to relate to Star Trek for the first time by seeing it presented in terms of blockbuster tropes and storytelling conventions with which they were familiar, and who were encouraged to look into the other shows after having it served to them in a form they were recognised, much like the hit 2020, Bangtan Son Yandan, International Smash, Dynamite. And so being conventional, being... Attempting to reach four, four corners or four quarters in that way, four quadrants, is not of itself a bad thing, provided that th- there is a risk that a franchise which is solely seeking validation in that way will lose its identity and will lose its ability to maintain a cadre of fans. But in balance, in served as part of a balanced diet it can serve to draw in new fans into the hardened cadre while making the franchise a viable commercial entity the question of course is what does that look like as a strategy going forward because i think one of the key risks with one of the key problems that discovery has faced and on the whole i do quite like discovery is that it's a show that is at once wedded to the past in a way that Next Gen never was. That it feels constantly obliged to call back and to ground itself in this broader universe in a way that Next Gen did on occasion, while at the same time offering something that's sufficiently stylistically different, that it has attracted a significant amount of opposition from established fans. I think it may be that... that discovery's one of discovery's flaws is that it's attempting to at once be a modern tv show produced in a modern tv show way and in doing so attracting some opposition from the established fan base while its attempts to honor and homage that existing fan base ultimately serve to be alienating to the new audience it's trying to create i think it's a really difficult balance to strike um, yeah, I, and uh, now
0: I don't know what the numbers are like for Discovery. This is this is maybe the crux of the question. Like, did the latest season explode in popularity or did it shrink? I, you know, it can be hard to say. You know, my, my tendency is to think that the latest series is probably, you know, it's hard to stand outside having been a Star Trek fan my entire life. I, I imagine that the new season is probably more accessible to other people than the previous seasons uh, because the, the the first two seasons were heavily wedded to Star Trek continuity of course they threw out a lot and this was the source of a lot of controversy but nevertheless it was based on well this is taking place at a certain point in the timeline and there are it's before the Klingons and the Federation went and and so on and Captain Pike is a major figure in the second season who you know everyone else is going who the hell is Captain Pike, right? Like, uh, so when we get to the third season, we're at a place where even if you're a longtime Star Trek fan, you're basically going, "Oh, what's what is this? I don't know. I don't know this world at all. It's completely new to me. It's it's a new timeline of Star Trek." And while there are callbacks to things like the Trill and to the and of course the Vulcan and Romulan, I've as I've said before, I really love the Vulcan Romulan uh, reunification plot line. That is obviously a a wonderful payoff to longtime Star Trek fans. But I think. There is also the factor that we have to consider, which is that Star Trek is such a huge iconic pop cultural phenomenon that no one's particularly lost when you say what a Vulcan or a Klingon is. It's not. It it's it, it's allowed to be a little more insular than some things possibly could be, because most people know the basic beats of Star Trek in that regard. I think they've walked the line well. I don't think they've ever uh, you could argue that you know again, if if you're looking at it purely from the viewpoint of okay, this is the first Star Trek thing I've ever seen, and here's season three of Discovery. Yes, it probably isn't going to be a, of huge appeal to you. Uh, you know, you're not going to know who the Trill are or whatever. But even in that situation, you would know who you've know you know the phrase Vulcans. You know what the Federation is. You know you know uh, you know warp speed and all that kind of stuff. Like that, this is not baffling to the 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 anyone but the absolute most detached viewer so i think uh that star trek and I, and and i do think there's more to be had from star trek delving a little bit into its mythos as it were now that said i do agree with your point that a lot of what v- was valuable about star trek next generation was that they were very not beholden to the past and also the structure was okay we're going to go to a planet this week and solve its problems in a You know, in a given way, whereas Discovery is spending a lot of time going, well, let's advance the mythos of Star Trek, which I like because I'm a Star Trek nerd. Um, But ultimately, I don't think... um, The thing about most science fiction shows is they're always like that. Even from minute one, there's going to be a backstory, there's going to be a mythos, there's going to be aliens and, and technology and stuff that you don't relate to directly as a person. You, most people are fully capable of using their imaginations and going, okay, I get it. The guy with the pointy ears is a logical alien, and he doesn't fit in with the humans. Like that, that that comes very naturally to you. So there's a difference between well, we're going to heavily invest in the lore and and make it incompre- do you know, do superhero comic stuff where the backstory is impossible to explain to people. And if I try to explain what some of the I mean, and I say that, and then at at a time when the Marvel Universe is is eating up the pop cultural <laughs> sphere, and 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 I have to try to explain to people who the Scarlet Witch and the Vision are, and and w- how much they and what their history in the comics is, and how bizarre and convoluted that is, and people are watching this show about them, and it's very popular. So, you know, you can never say for sure. Oh, this is never going to be successful, and this is so. But but I think in 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 the broader sense, I think right now star trek is making itself accessible walking a very good line of being accessible while doing new things and and, and homaging what it what it's always been
1: i think it's really interesting that you bring up um, the the marvel cinematic universe cuz you're absolutely right it's an example whereby there is an enormous mainstream audience who have turned out in their millions to watch a movie where the Avengers fight Thanos, something which would have been unimaginable 13 years ago. But I think it's, it's actually really interesting how the MCU has used existing Marvel continuity not as a shackle, but effectively as a source to mine or discard as they see fit. That they're able to draw upon prior concepts to the extent that it fits the story that they want to tell in this day and age, but to be able to depart from it or to discard it or to go back to first principles where it would be inaccessible to a... a a new audience, that Thanos they can keep the idea of clicking your fingers and killing half the universe because that works with the story they're going to tell and otherwise dis- discard it all and start from a clean slate in order to create someone who is not ba- who is more suited to the way the rest of their universe is set up. And in doing so the MCU has been able to achieve success equaled only by Pangtan Son Dan and their 2020 single dynamite. Okay. Now uh, yeah, uh, that, that, that's the last one, I think. Um, so I... Uh, look, I like Discovery. As someone who has produced nine episodes of a Star Trek podcast, I like Discovery's approach to its past. But I think that it might benefit Star Trek to... Uh, ado- I, I, I think that potentially it would behoove Discovery to treat Star Trek continuity in the way that the MCU treats Marvel continuity. Departing from the strict linear, this is a sequence of events that all happened and one thing led to another. And for Star Trek to effectively dissipate into a couple of different ways of looking at broader concepts rather than purporting to be an exhaustive history of a fictional universe. For the show to be able to draw upon other Star Trek concepts to the extent they fit the show and to discard those which ultimately aren't particularly interesting or which would require too much explanation. and But the show, to effectively take a looser approach to the universe in which it takes place. And that might mean, for example... Now, I mean, the obvious example of this is the full scene at the end of Discovery season two, in which w- there is a lengthy and labored explanation of why none of this will ever be mentioned again, which feels more than anything like a straight playing of the scene at the end of The Principal and the Pauper, where they explain that they're never, ever going to bring up Armin Tamsarian again. I can't imagine how that would have felt to an audience that was viewing it as a piece of TV, rather than laboriously sitting through it, an explanation that is intends to make memory out for work. <laughs> Ultimately, Discovery could afford to spend less time explaining how it fits into the broader picture and instead taking the broader picture as a source of concepts to mine rather than being something into which it needs to fit come hell or high water.
0: Yeah, uh, no, and I mean, you're absolutely right. Uh, and I think that was a factor of the first seasons of Discovery honestly not being in a great place like it was sort of a well we're going to do a prequel because as homer simpson would say everyone likes prequels right uh and that was exactly the situation they were in and I, i think everyone agreed it wasn't really what hardcore Star Trek fans wanted to see, and I don't know if like casual fans or anyone who might be casually interested was particularly interested in either. The parts that compelled people about Discovery were, well, this is something new. It's a new character. It's a new cast. They're do-, you know Some interesting ideas like the fact that the lead was not the captain of the ship, for instance. Uh, that was the kind of stuff that was more compelling. And I think... Star Trek uh, the second season was a lot of it was really Lim just saying okay how can we get from that to where we really want to be <laughs> so when you say it's laborious it's like it's true but it's also them kind of desperately trying to reconfigure the show uh in a, in a real way and I would argue that um I think it's got there or it's it's at least getting there um, it's worth noting that, uh, the Picard series that they did, uh, which I didn't mention earlier, um, was literally, I mean, that's, if any show is going to be a nostalgia trip, it's going to be the show that is explicitly about Captain Picard and his adventures in, um, in, you know, uh, 20 or 30 years later, whatever the, the timeline is there. Um, and, and literally it could have just been the great big, Sergeant next generation nostalgia tour and i i have to give it props you know whatever your problems with picard i again i really like picard i can see some specific issues that i had with it uh, it should have been a mini series and it should have ended for starters
1: um, i completely agree on each front yeah. i liked picard and i would be happy never to get any more Picard. <laughs> but one of the things that uh, about it that was
0: um that I really have to give it props for. It was Picard, but then everything else, and of course, it was it had a storyline that was heavily tied into stuff from Next Generation, the Borg, uh, Data, and all uh, you know, androids, and all that sort of stuff. All very heavily tied into uh, what what they'd done on Next Generation, but at the same time, it was a whole new cast. It was essentially a bunch of new story ideas. Um, you know, they did things like they. Yeah, they brought back the Romulans, but when they create the... Um, God, I'm always forgetting what the, the the samurai nuns of the Romulans are called. The um, the, uh, uh, the the truth-telling samurai nuns. Um,
1: I realise that when I shrug, it, the audience can't actually see it. So I'd like to take this moment to point out that I'm shrugging in an exaggerated way. I don't know. Only nerds would know that kind of thing.
0: <laughs> Rob to it. <laughs> <laughs> They're called the Koat Malat. I can't let that pass. I'm sorry. That's a major part of Star Trek lore right now, so I can't just let it slide. <laughs> yes, the Mulat. Malat, um, the people who, um, uh, who, uh, yeah, who, who, uh, th- like that was a new idea. And yes, it was tied to the Romulans, but it could it could have been a new race if they needed it to be. Like it, it's not Trek. Again, Trek fans are just going to be as much in the dark about that as as with anything else. It it's fleshing out something that already exists, but it's not. Doing it in a way where oh you got to know the Romulans and so now that yeah, again there's obviously stuff in Picard that like literally the fact that it's tied into Star Trek Nemesis and um, the uh, the Abrams movie and to stuff that happens off screen in the Abrams movie no less <laughs> is a fundamental uh, part of the plot storyline in uh in Picard and that is um you know yes yeah, so, of course so we're getting into some deep cut stuff here as well but it still said like no we're gonna bring in a new cast we're gonna have a new adventure there's gonna be all these new elements into Star Trek there was no there was no sense of like hey kids it's that stuff you like from before in Picard or there was but it wasn't it didn't shack it didn't hold it down basically and i i've i've been saying and lower decks the same thing i don't know if you've had a chance to see lower decks yet uh douglas i have not there there uh again there's oddly of all the shows i think lower decks is the one that feels the most like it's being a bit of a nostalgia tour for next generation but it still isn't constrained by that and in fact that's the show that tells Star Trek stories where they go on an adventure every week and it's a whole new idea like so so any in one element you'd like from Star Trek that that would keep it fresh is somewhere in all the different shows they're doing and um you know if i we can see where this uh strange new world show starring captain pike ends up but uh you know that's the show that maybe might be stuck in the stop in nostalgia but then you've got all these other star trek shows <laughs> so um in a sense the show is uh, able to serve all its masters in a way that uh you know a lot of other franchises can't do right now there's that there is that possibility
1: i'm so glad that you bring up all those other shows cuz that gets us to something that I'm, I think we're both really keen to discuss, the Section 31 show. Okay. Our show notes uh, indicate that we are to discuss this in the following terms. Is the Section 31 show a bad idea? Or alternatively, is it a truly terrible idea that threatens <laughs> to break Star Trek? Um, because, going back to a theme that has been of some interest to me, Are there limits to how far you can take Star Trek before it stops being Star Trek? Is Star Trek ultimately defined by being a corporate property owned by various media companies at various times? Or is there some essential set of core values that makes a show Star Trek? Is a certain Korean boy band defined by the identity of the members, or by singing about topics that are meaningful to them in lyrics that they themselves have written, for example? Now I'll. Uh, I, I think you've got more to say on the Section Thirty One show than I do. I. I think it's a bad idea. I think there are ways in which it could be done that would be true to Star Trek as a whole, but that the way in which Section Thirty One was treated in season two of Discovery does not fill me with enormous confidence in that regard. The conceit of Section Thirty One is not as uh, captain Jojo would have it freaks have more fun the conceit of section 31 is that they are a horrible corrosive rot that they are they're not cool they're not glamorous they're genocidal bad guys they need to be stopped it's not a question of entering uneasy alliances with them they are ultimately the future from which star trek is escaping at warp speed i I, I don't want now, I realise that makes it sound like I want a show that is entirely didactic, that tells us, that is that starts from a point of view of moral condemnation, and which effectively functions as a witch trial of Section 31. And to be clear, I would like a Star Trek show that is entirely set up as a witch trial of Section 31. <laughs> but it doesn't entirely have to be that. The show doesn't have to be didactic, to nonetheless come from a particular perspective, to nonetheless hold star trek values and to live up to the better future that is at the core of what the franchise is trying to represent even when that better future has come into challenge like in picard the show doesn't start from a point of view that it's come into challenge because the world is a bleak and fallen place It's that this future has come under under challenge, and so we must fight to preserve its values. And so I think a Section 31 show could only be Star Trek, could only live up to the unifying characteristics of the franchise if it doesn't fall overwhelmingly in love with the cool allure of black leather. But the way in which Georgiou was presented in Discovery Season 2, and especially in Discovery Season 3, in which characters fell all over themselves to praise a character who eats people does not fill me with confidence
0: adam yes uh well now we so section 31 is something it's very easy to just say oh my god section 31 and yes i think it has not been handled well in the last uh, decade of trek um but there is it, section 31 does exist for a reason and we did talk about it in uh prior episodes i can't remember to what degree we went into it i don't want to delve into to, to there but but in section 31 is where you start to see the seeds of something that trek needed which is as we said it's it's the neoliberal dream star trek it's we all go out to the you know we all share join hands and go out to the future but at the same time it's kind of like space america and it's the advanced uh you know it's 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 Everything we're doing now, except we got rid of the bad parts, is is the implication of so much of Star Trek, as we've said. Section 31 and other bits of say Nine, actually, and then Star Trek since, have existed to kind of stay, hold up, wait a minute, America, if you love living in America or in the Western world, you're going to have to point to the fact that, you know, we're not, no, it doesn't matter how well-meaning we are, we've got all these, you know, skeletons in our closet. Um, you know, we've, we've got these, we've, we've done terrible things to get to the level of, uh, you know, luxury and, 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 uh, even in many ways, you know, moral advancement that the, that our society is, is in, um, it's, it's often based on having done terrible things and then gone, well, that's over with now, even when it isn't, in most cases, it is not over with. Um, so, um. You can see why they would introduce Section 31. It introduces that note into the Star Trek universe. And much of what Star Trek has been doing since then has been challenging that. As much as Star Trek Into Darkness is not a good movie, <laughs> I can you can see what they're doing uh, with it. Again, it is them going, well, wait a minute, are we as perfect as we claim to be? Are we as perfect? And that's one of the reasons I like Star Trek uh, Discovery Season 3, because they basically said, okay, the Federation had a lot of flaws that we're eventually going to have to acknowledge. So what we're basically going to do is have a bit of a, a bit, a bit of a, I don't want to say break, but a, a bit of a, a deluge that we've got to come back from. And it, I, I, that's why I was so impressed with discovery season three in some ways that there was a real sense of like, Oh, they're going to do the dystopian days of future past of star Trek where everyone's, on the lamb and everything's destruct destroyed and horrible and awful and see you were stupid to ever believe in the federation and so on. And uh you know you've got that tension versus but if you say the federation is great and wonderful and everybody's perfect you're also creating problems basically. They have to resolve that tension and that and the season 3 of discovery picard and some of the other things they've got going on is a very good faith attempt to reconcile those tensions. And and I really appreciate that. So as you say, part of the problem with the Section 31 is that they seem to think Section 31 is cool. Now, there is the possibility, this is this is me maybe being very, very generous, that Section 31 will be a show about, um, it will be an anti-hero show. It will be The Sopranos, of, or Breaking Bad, of the Trek universe. It will be a show where they acknowledge that the, the protagonists, or at least some of the characters, are villainous and bad, and that we are not necessarily supposed to root for them. That's about the best iteration I can think of for how the Section 31 show could work and be decent. And it's also worth (laughs) noting that of all the Star Trek TV shows that have been mooted, Section 31 is the one that is not, I don't believe, actually in production at the moment. Uh, So there is some question over whether that's actually going to take form after everything that's happened. So there are a few possible outcomes here that might actually be good. Uh, Just as I want to say, actually calling back to what you said earlier about the shows with JJ Abrams. um, I think you're right. Like the, the track that Star Trek eventually found itself on is very good. I I'm, I'm, I'm generally in favor of where Star Trek is going and we got there because of the Abrams movies. But at the same time, I'm glad that the Abrams movies actually kind of (laughs) ended. Like I don't, I don't regret that they had their moment and they revived Star Trek and that, they basically seem to have accepted. You know what? We're never going to. We're never going to have uh, <laughs> a, a blockbuster Star Wars style franchise in Star Trek, and it does make sense to be on television. And I actually do want to talk about Star Trek on television, but I've talked long enough. Your your turn, uh, Douglas.
1: <laughs> I. I mean, oh, there, there, there's two things I want to pick up on there. Um, First is the idea that the the new Section 31 show could be like The Sopranos or Breaking Bad. I would actually love a show that... A a Section 31 show that, like The Sopranos, was ultimately about the hollowness, the seediness, the, the extraordinarily unglamorous state of Section 31. Because... As much as, obviously, there's a segment of The Sopranos audience that watches it because Tony Soprano's a badass, I think that the segment of The Sopranos audience that appreciates it on the level of Tony is ultimately a horrible narcissist who destroys everything he loves because there's a fundamental void at the centre of his being, I think that is a larger segment of The Sopranos audience than it is of the Breaking Bad audience, where obviously A similar critique is made of Walter White, but I think arguably both the show itself and its audience maintained a bit less clarity about the fundamental monster that Walter is. And I think that's the tension that has to be maintained. A a, a Section 31 show that functions ultimately as a... that presents a clear view on the organisation and its protagonists, that is violent and that is corrosive and that is immoral, because that is ultimately a means of pe- painting the portrait it wants to portray. I think that could be fantastic. But my worry, as I said, is that idea of being seduced by the darkness of it all and losing that. Cause I think the Sopranos is ultimately a show which maintains a really clear moral vision of the poison that Tony is. And I think that a section 31 show that didn't have that sense of its, of it, the toxicity of its concept would be, lose focus and ultimately be detrimental the second thing is about the abrams movies um i yeah i i i, I agree I, I section star trek into darkness is not a great movie i it, the things that it is trying to be about it is about it's better when it misses what it's trying to be about because some of the things that it's trying to portray are arguably born of conspiratorial and, you know, fairly noxious viewpoints. It's one of the very examples where Star Trek is... It's, it's better when it's not trying to be political. But I do appreciate that Into Darkness was trying to be about something for what it's worth, which in Star Trek Into Darkness's case is very little... That said, I would happily have taken three or four more movies like Star Trek Beyond. In the Star Trek Beyond formula, I think Star Trek Beyond was fantastic. Just, I mean, you don't have to wreck the Enterprise every time, although it would be extremely amusing if they did, but the crew visits a planet and deals with an alien civilization and a captain who's lost his way in classic original series form. There's bright colors, there's punchy music from one of the boy bands of their day. Um, there's there's energy and excitement, and at the same time, uh, the clearest vision of how the Federation differs from what came before, then arguably you'd find in any modern Trek property. More optimism, more faith in the ideals of the Federation than you would find in any Trek property in the last 20 years. I loved Beyond, and I think that that was uh, uh, even though it underperformed at the box office if they'd gotten the for having gotten the formula right if they'd gotten the marketing right to suit i think that was a really interesting and worthwhile route for the franchise and i'm sorry that it seems to have found it in development hell from there but that's it talking about star trek on tv i yeah i i i, I think you're right star trek Obviously, there's been a lot of Star Trek movies, but I agree with the conventional wisdom that Star Trek's home is on TV, that TV offers opportunities for the diversity of different types of stories that Star Trek can tell. Because ultimately star trek can't be wedded to one particular story or one particular type of story that part of its strength part of its ability to marshal such a broad fan base is that it can work in so many different molds. it can work episodically it can work in terms of telling a broader story it can do comedy it can do pathos it can do tragedy it can do horror that star trek's what makes it so exciting is that uh, it is a genre show that can draw to such an enormous extent upon other genres, in a way that's equaled in science fiction really only by Doctor Who. And so part of my concern about the new wave of Star Trek shows is I want to make sure, I, 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 I would be more comforted about them if I were sure that they were able, that they weren't tying themselves too narrowly to one particular concept, one particular storytelling mode. I think it's important that future incarnations of Star Trek can maintain that flexibility and that ability to grow, evolve, and to digress that every Star Trek show that's been successful has had. And uh, hopefully, you're absolutely right, Strange New Worlds does sound like a bit of a nostalgia trip. Original flavour Star Trek. um, Vanilla Star Trek, as it were. But I could see, I'm quite excited for it because I'm kind of looking forward to a Star Trek show that even if it has a basic concept, is capable of using that basic concept to tell a really wide range of stories with that concept.
0: Yeah, I, I, I think you're right. I mean, Brave New Worlds could be the Star Trek show where it's this week we're on this planet and they have these problems, which we will resolve in our paternalistic way. And, or or, ideally not, but you know what I mean? That, That they'll be traveling to a different planet every week that it's not going to be, you know, Captain Pike, certainly he's a bit of a blank slate. I mean, we don't know, uh, other than he was the captain before Kirk and he's thanks to Abrams, especially he's been framed as kind of a mentor to Kirk. And we know he eventually ends up, uh, having an accident and being, uh, uh, in pretty rough shape before being taken back to Talos. Uh, that's literally the beginning and end of his story as far as we know. Uh, everything that happened in between is up in the air so there's 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 a pretty good uh, you know, uh, there's a pretty good uh, uh, blank space for us to fill, an unwritten page as it were, uh, for us to fill with him. Uh, but yeah, I mean th- I think you're, you made a good point when you talked about the digressiveness of Star Trek because that's that is ultimately something that we haven't seen as much from the new shows. And I have to say... now. So this is something that I've been big about as a guy growing up in the 90s. And, and um, you know, being really into TV, sci-fi TV, and especially Star Trek. Uh, you know, Star Trek was the baseline. But there was also... Um, eventually, there was X-Files and there was Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Those are the three big shows that I was, you know, just absolutely, you know, obsessed with as a kid. And they're all... Monster of the Week shows, or although in Star Trek you'd say more Civilization of the Week, I guess. Um, but it's the idea of we go a place, and there's people, and those people who are there, or the, the you know, the other race, or whatever it is, they are the ones who, this is maybe less true of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, but um, with X-Files and with Star Trek, the idea is we go to a place, and, these, and we meet these people, and their problems come to the fore in that episode. It, it becomes... It, it kind of blurs over into being an anthology show in some ways. It's not, but it's it comes awfully close. You could write a, a single short story with new characters, but often you could take that story and then drop the Star Trek characters into it, for instance, and thereby... You know, explore uh, this story, because the focus is very often on what's happening at that particular planet with those particular characters, with that week's guest stars, and whatever the adventures are on that particular planet. Uh, that's something that the current version of Star Trek has not paid a lot of attention to. It hasn't been about uh, going from place to place and, and solving the problems of a particular place. It does do that, but for instance, it did it on... Um, you know, with Saru's people, uh, it did it with uh, Vulcan and uh, Navar. Now, now Navar, the the reunited Vulcan Romulan. So they're places that we have an emotional connection to. If you're a Star Trek fan, so you see why they did that. Uh, in other, in every other regard, it was kind of a classic Star Trek story. In that, hey, we're going to this planet where they have weird problems, and we need something, and we need to resolve their problems. But they're all planets that we knew about, and that at least one of the crew had a connection to. So that is the that is the difference between that. Um, oddly enough, uh, the first season of Discovery was the one that did the most uh, hey, we're going to go to a planet and 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 figure out what the problems are of that planet. They did, they did actually do several episodes in the first season of Discovery that were classic Star Trek in that regard. We haven't really gotten it as much because we've been too caught up with the meta plot. And a Again, they'll, they'll you know, like the first episode in uh, season two of Discovery where they went to uh, New, uh, new I want to say New Genesis, but I can't remember. And it was the... Uh, it's New Earth, Earth, I think they just called it. Yeah, n- n- yeah, New Earth. And it was, and again, it was there and uh, hey, let's see the problems that they have at this place and so on and so forth. Uh, but it was tied into the larger storyline. In that case, it was united by the Red Angel storyline who was beckoning them from place to place. I Get that I see that it's better to have some compelling thing that pulls you from place to place and that there Because it really was true. The reason I bring up the 90s I did get frustrated as a kid sometimes watching especially next generation where it was just like hey this week this happens Okay, bye. Okay this week this happens. Okay, bye There wasn't as much connective tissue and it's it got especially bad with Voyager Uh, Because they weren't even bothering to, like, develop the characters as well. In, in like, oh, they did this one this week, and that'll lead to an advancement next week, an advancement next week, and maybe the ship will... Something will happen to the ship. Uh, As, I think, um, um, uh, Ronald Moore, when he was briefly on Voyager, and he very famously lambasted Voyager, for the idea that, like, well, look, they're not going to be a Starfleet ship after seven years in the Delta Quadrant. They're going to have... Come upon all these things, and they they're going to have to they're they're going to have a new culture. Basically, it's going they're going to have to adjust to where they are. And instead, it just became more Starfleet hijinks of well, we're going to visit a planet. They were literally negotiating trade treaties in the Delta Quadrant. It's like you guys are supposed to be lost miles (laughs) from home. You're doing diplomatic bureaucratic stuff. Like I. It's nice to have that idea, but for God's sake, guys, you, sh- you should be focused on some of the major problems. And then they did things like Year of Hell, where they just hit the reset button and so forth. So it really did get frustrating in t- at, at that particular point in TV when people were starting to engage with the idea of you could have a developing storyline. You could have a meta plot. And... Um, so we've now gone way too far in genre TV in the other direction, <laughs> I think, uh, where everything is about an ongoing meta plot and everything is an eight hour long movie or 13 hour long movie. And there aren't as many opportunities to go into these little uh, these little uh, cul-de-sacs and explore, you know, standalone storylines. So a, a happy medium needs to be formed. But it does need to be say, said that I I get why we don't go back to absolutely old school classic Star Trek. And tying into what you said at the beginning again, like Star Trek needs to move forward with the times. That is the times and it's not for nothing that people prefer stories to be in that in that mode.
1: I I just wish that modern Star Trek was more like modern Doctor Who. I realized that I could make it a deeper critique about the things that modern Doctor Who does right and modern Star Trek does wrong. But I just think that modern Doctor Who's gotten the formula basically right, and I wish that Star Trek would do basically that, but subbing in Vulcans for TARDISes. Um, nothing particularly more sophisticated than that. I think, look, in, in making the new Doctor Who, Russell T. Davies explicitly spoke about how he owed a debt to Buffy, that the, the show which created the storytelling model he was using was Buffy. And so he created a show that was a mix of standalone episodes which built up ultimately to a big bad of the season at the end who had been seeded throughout. And Stephen Moffat, the second showrunner of Modern Doctor Who, obviously adopted a more contentious and more serialised model, but still using the same basic bones of it. Enormous amounts, far more episodic content than you would find on any either of the contemporary live action Star Trek shows. I think that now the Doctor Who format is now in, has just finished its 12th season. Arguably, it's approached, it, 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 it itself is due for a rethink because I think the most recent seasons of Doctor Who have felt a bit tired at times. But it's been an enormously successful way of reconciling the past of a an largely episodic, self-contained science fiction TV series, even though in Doctor Who's case it's self-contained serials rather than self-contained episodes, and the realities of modern TV production. I think it can be done, and I wish that Star Trek would... To be honest, what I really, really wish for Star Trek is that it did look outside itself a bit more. We've talked about uh, Star Trek being... You've, you've mentioned Star Trek being one of the three big episodic TV series of the 90s, and that in many ways it serves as the template of a lot, a lot of modern space opera shows, whether they're using the Star Trek template, like Stargate, or reacting against the Starfle- Star Trek template, like Battlestar Galactica, but still being shaped by that template. They're being in conversation with Star Trek. One of Star Trek's continuous creative pitfalls for decades now, has been the sense that it's largely in conversation with itself, that it's either reacting against itself or that it's adopting its own history rather than being open to um, seeing how other genre shows have employed the mould successfully. In some, ca- Obviously, discovery serialisation is adopting a trend in modern TV, but I wish that Star Trek felt a bit more open to A diversity of modes between absolute serialization and absolute episodic format because sometimes when it veers between extremes it feels like they haven't actually seen any other tv shows Anyway, that's just me going on but we've uh, since we're a a fair way in i want to shift to the topic of can star trek die
0: yeah one last point based on what you just said i mean i think you you put your finger on it um you're right it needs to be uh, not just, this is what I was talking about earlier when I said like a show like Picard isn't just, hey, look, it's all the people you liked before. It, it did try to bring in other people and stuff like that. Now, it that's less about format and more just about content. Uh, but hmm. I, I do think they, I, I, I would slightly disagree with what you said, uh, that they, they've been too constrained. And it is ironic that I think uh, between Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Deep Space Nine, are two of almost ideal for me. As, you know, millions may disagree uh, for how you can handle that balance of serialization and standalone. I think those are both very, very good models to look at for that uh, because they both did have monster of the week in Buffy's case, or uh, you know, uh, whatever encounter of the week on Deep Space Nine. Um, that is absolutely something that they did encounter that they did. And, and Deep Space Nine was often constructed more as sort of a, we've got a vague goal, and we're building on what we've done before, but we're not planning out every single thing that's going to happen in Season 7 in Season 3. Uh, unlike its contemporary Babylon 5, which claimed to have done that, although from what I understand, he didn't actually have it that carefully planned out from point, what, point A to point B, and even if he had, he had to make multiple massive adjustments. Um, and, and as long as we're talking about that, it does need to be said that you know the format of star trek is kind of the format of television like it's there's a reason that you were you're absolutely right when you say it's in everybody's in dialogue with star trek you can't do a space tv show and in some ways you can't even do a a science fiction tv show at all even if it doesn't involve outer space that isn't kind of in dialogue with star trek it's the you know it's the ancient athens of starch of of science fiction basically you've got to you you know you can reject it you can push back against it but you're going to be acknowledging it by doing that, right? And so, yes. anything from, and we've seen it especially in the last 20 years with, like, the two big ones being Firefly and uh Balzar Galactica are both very explicitly in conversation with Star Trek. Like, um, Battlestar Galactica is basically leftover Trek ideas that they said, let's do them right. <laughs> essentially. Um, not to I love Battlestar Galactica. I'm not dismissing it at all, but that was, that was very much what they were trying to do. And even that goes back to like Babylon five, that is unquestionably a star Trek. Like that's J. Michael Straczynski's take on star Trek, essentially where he did some other stuff he wanted to do. Uh, All the many, many (laughs) uh, sci-fi, uh, Usually syndicated sci-fi shows of the '90s. I mean, it's just it—it's such a towering figure over over uh, over television. So you know, as you say, I don't think you can ever get rid of this. Even if Star Trek went away tomorrow, uh, you couldn't get rid of Star Trek as a format, effectively. <laughs> so that's tying into okay. So as you were about to say about uh, can Star Trek die? Let's. Uh...
1: Oh, I'm uh, yeah. I'm sorry. For, uh, sorry for cutting you off. We could honestly. We can probably. So as to preserve your options for editing, I'll start the sentence again, and then the audience can either start from this point or get a fascinating view into the behind the scenes of the Mirror Universe podcast.
0: <laughs> no, I, think that's, I that, think
1: that's a good idea. <laughs> well, that brings us to the very interesting question. Can Star Trek die? Is there going to be a point in which Star Trek isn't being produced anymore? And if Star Trek does survive, what does the survival of Star Trek look like? Is it going to be a question of Paramount and its corporate successors producing a show called Star Trek across a variety of media? Or does the future of Star Trek ultimately look like the future of Sherlock Holmes, that ultimately it's going to look like dissipation across a variety of official and non-official sources? I actually think the dissipation future is considerably more promising and considerably more interesting Obviously, ceasing to own a very massively valuable property is not a particularly attractive future for Star Trek to the people who own the property. But in terms of the show's actual survival, in terms of going from an entertainment product to part of the cultural imaginary, Star Trek's ultimate survival might depend upon new companies, new creators being able to use as much of it as they like, to create official or non-official Star Trek works. To create works which are a bit Star Trek, or which would otherwise infringe upon Star Trek, but which only take those elements which suit the new story, rather than being wedded to one corporate vehicle producing one official vision of what Star Trek is. I know that Star Trek is not going to enter the public domain for a very long, very long time, especially if um, the year in which it will enter the public domain keeps steadily advancing forward. But I've really hoped that I live long enough to see Star Trek not be something that Paramount owns, but ultimately something that we own. That it that Star Trek would not just be what the people who own Star Trek say it is, but that ultimately you have a diversity of competing Star Treks that. Can ultimately, in that way, become immortal.
0: Yeah, I, I think you're. That's 100. percent What I was going to say, like that. That's it, it, this ties into a larger issue that we're dealing with IP and the way that the things that we create, that that pat, that we're passionate about, the, the 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 stories that we tell these days, are owned by big corporations, and that's really not the ideal circumstance to live in. Uh, who knows? We'd like to imagine there be, might be some time when the doors will throw will be thrown open and everyone can do whatever they want with whatever these properties i mean technically we are sort of there now uh because fanfic has become more and more of a uh of a mainstream option i mean there's literally some semi legitimate ways of doing fanfic out there uh with the uh, amazon was trying to monetize it a while ago i remember and there's archive of our own and things like that um so in a very real sense um we're, there is the dissipation is starting to happen. And as we already talked about very early on, Star Trek already went through a period like that. I mean, Star Trek was the thing that was being kept alive by the fans for at least a decade, even as the corporation that owned it or the people who owned it were struggling to to bring it back to life. It was the fans that kept it alive, the fans that did their own thing with it in many, many different uh interpretations. That's another reason probably why Star Trek has lasted as long as it is because you know, it you know, it this this fan uh world <laughs> opened up the doors and showed all the different opportunities that you could have with Star Trek. Um it it would be wonderful to get back there. In some ways it is actually slightly disappointing that, you know, oh we've got this official formal Star Trek IP. You could argue that that, that you know that, that limits the show in some ways. It would be, you know, as with any uh property you know, it, it has to end and sort of go off and, and become a thing of of history so that it can be part of our shared history and then branch into a multitude of different uh different ways, as something like Sherlock Holmes has, like Sherlock Holmes being public domain means that you can do all these different versions of Sherlock Holmes. There's a canonical Sherlock Holmes, and everyone can agree on that, but if I write a Sherlock Holmes story tomorrow and I really make a huge mess of it, nobody's going to care because I don't own Sherlock Holmes. I'm not the Sherlock Holmes guy. Um, It would be great if Star Trek was in the same situation that there were just these diversity, infinite diversity and infinite combinations of Star Trek, as you might say Um, that, you know, and, and of all the of all the franchises out there, it's also probably the one that that calls out the most to the possibility of, you know, it can be for everyone and everyone can can uh can do their own thing with it. You could create your own Star Trek OC if you wanted to. You could send them on adventures in strange new worlds that you create and it could still be Star Trek and it could still be yours and it doesn't have to impinge on anyone else's version of Star Trek. Uh that the fact that that exists is is extremely uh it, it it's one of the core things that I think I love about Star Trek. The fact that I can say that and it doesn't sound completely ridiculous. No matter who owns Star Trek at any particular point in time.
1: I think that's absolutely perfect. I, We had a couple of wrap-up points we were going to hear, but I can't imagine anything that I'm going to say that would wrap up the key themes of this episode better than you've just done. So I would propose, and of course, if you disagree, we can edit this whole thing out and come up with something better, that we move to our end of Series 1 reflection uh, on what we have learned. Now, pre- the show notes ask us, what have we learned preparing and presenting this show? What surprised us, and is it possible to love Star Trek just as much after dissecting and critiquing it? And I'll give you a first go. (laughs) Um,
0: What have I learned? Boy, well, I I got a hold of some Star Trek Phase 2 material that I hadn't seen. I still haven't read this book beginning to end. Um, We've uh, seen the... I don't think Discovery had actually ended when we started recording, so... um, there was that. Um, I um, yeah. There, there's you. Boy, uh, <laughs> I, putting me on the spot here because you've you've thrown out so many interesting ideas for me, and I can't remember specifically. I, I didn't know Star Trek would be ever connected to a uh, Korean boy band. Uh, that's uh, that's new. Um,
1: Not just you, a Korean boy band. <laughs> the best Korean boy band.
0: Fair enough. <laughs> um <laughs> Uh, you the planet of hacks thing that you discussed—that was definitely uh, something that was of of interest to me. I I, I don't know. It's it's been uh, it's been a, a, a fruitful exchange of ideas. Let's say, let's put it that way.
1: I, I, I look. I hadn't read or even heard of Alia before you sent it to okay. me, um, and I loved reading that. Mm-hmm. I thought that insight into nineteen sixties fan culture, and indeed the extent to which being able to see kinship between the debates that. Drove me when I was a teenager in the 2000s, and the debates which drove these people united not by place or by age or by anything else, but just by the love for this show. That sense of historical kinship, of being part of an ongoing debate, that was really, really fun. Um, in terms of whether it is possible to love Star Trek just as much after dissecting and critiquing it, I mean, yeah, I think so. Uh, Star Trek is not perfect. Star Trek is a long way from perfect. It's, It has frequently fallen short of both its own values and of basic standards of competence in TV production. <laughs> it has been produced by some people who were not just good writers but good people. It has been produced by some people who were bad writers but good people. It's been produced by a number of people who were good writers but bad people. And it's been produced by an even larger cohort who were terrible both as TV professionals and by basic standards of moral conduct. Star Trek is a show that needs to be viewed with that in mind, that ultimately, I think, if, if we persisted in too rosy a view of what Star Trek is or what Star Trek can be, there would be no way to love it like we do because it could never live up to that ideal. But I think, ultimately, what this show is trying to convey is that Star Trek has so often fallen short of the values for which it aspires. But that at its core, it's the unifying feature of Star Trek across the last 50 something years hasn't been creative personnel. It hasn't even necessarily been telling the same types of stories, but that it's trying to be better. It's trying to live up to that sense of what we could be. And as often as its characters fall short, and as often as its crew and its creators fall short, it's an extraordinarily valuable force politically and culturally to have a show that is driven by that idea.
0: I like Star Trek because I like dissecting things. And I like that Star Trek gives me this material to dissect and that it is intensely flawed and that it's not uh, its not something that comes out great. At, you know, it, it has these great high notes, but that there's so much of Star Trek that... Isn't good but is interesting <laughs> means that, that it's this it's this uh corpus that you can dissect and delve into and pour over and 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 you're you're of course you're going to say oh look at that goofy makeup and look at those terrible effects that they did on that one you're, you're always looking at it and saying yeah that 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 didn't quite work and that's almost beside the point just as when uh, again. The the closest parallel, I think, is superhero comics because there's so many of these comics to read, and people read them as curiosities to a large degree, but because they're tied into something that they care about that has a larger thing. There's so many Superman comics... And I'm talking about old time Superman comics, where he's like, "This isn't Superman. This is what Superman would never do." That he just, you know, killed a guy or something. Like, there's there's so many things you can look at where it doesn't match you with what your ideal of what it's supposed to be is. And uh, Star Trek's the same way. There's so many versions of Star Trek that are out there that don't fit with what we would call the Star Trek, you know, philosophy and the ideology of Star Trek beyond the superficial. Uh, but it doesn't matter because it's all there. It's just such a rich thing to dive into even when it's bad it provides these really fascinating things to discuss
1: so to wrap up ordinarily i don't have anything to plug on this podcast uh because this is a way of getting away from my day job rather than a supplement to it <laughs> but for this i would like to make an exception i would strongly encourage you to check out a south korean boy band called bangtan sonyeondan or bts they Their hit single Dynamite is lighting up the charts at this moment. It's a friendly, breezy, if somewhat superficial introduction to a band that means an enormous amount to me. And their lyrics, their music, their performances, their commitment to high ideals is in the best tradition of Star Trek.
0: Adam, excellent. All right, and I'm going. <laughs> so there's something I learned about this in this sep- in, in this journey that we've taken. I've learned all about K-pop, uh, or at least one very specific band. Uh, yes, as always, I'm. Uh, uh, I do another podcast called uh, What Mad Universe, where we delve into uh, with my friend Philip Rice. We talk about uh, the history of genre fiction and the origins of various pop cultural tropes in pulp uh, fiction and sci-fi and fantasy. Uh, it's at what uh, neversleepsnetwork.com slash series slash what-mad-universe or your podcatcher of choice. You can always find it there. Uh, it would be really great if uh, people would check it out and if you'd really like to help us out you could re- leave us a review uh, at iTunes. You could do the same with this very podcast uh, because that helps boost us up the charts when we get a good review. Uh, and I do have a Patreon, I will mention that uh, is for... Uh, prankster36 or adam or you can just search for adam prosser with two s's on patreon uh and uh we uh that's what i do to uh supplement my income and it's got comics and all kinds of other stuff i do lots of stuff uh but um as always i am looking forward to uh star trek's future which is not going anywhere uh in the the next few years and uh as we've said, I maybe I'll create. Actually, I created a uh, lower decks uh, fan comic as well, which is on the Patreon. If you'd like to check that out, so uh, I, I like to say I've been part of the uh, the uh, Star Trek, uh, the dissolution of Star Trek, and the infinite diversity and infinite combinations that's out there. Um, so I guess we're uh, we're wrapping it up for the evening. So I will say one last time: live long and prosper.
1: See you on the other side.